0: Hi guys, welcome back to What's on Your Mind. I'm here today with Lydia Fennett, a global thought leader and Christine's ambassador. Lydia has led at auctions for more than 600 organizations, raising over half a billion dollars for nonprofits globally. She was named one of New York Times' most influential women, as and has been featured several times in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and more. She's also the author of a widely acclaimed book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room Is You, which was published by simon and schuster in 2019 and has been optioned for tv by netflix i know isn't that crazy she's also the author of another book claim your confidence which was actually just released so definitely go check that out i will make sure to leave a link to it in the description and lydia also has her own podcast the claim your confidence podcast so i'll leave those links in the show notes but enjoy the show guys Lydia, I'm so honored and so excited to have you here. So thank you so much for coming. Why don't you say hi? Hi, guys. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and
1: to talk with you. I'm so excited to tell you what's on my mind and also (laughs) learn a little bit from you as well. So thank you for the opportunity and let's get into it. I'm so excited.
0: Yes, let's get into it. So before we really do get into it, what... What do you, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do in your own words.
1: Sure. So I grew up in a small town in Louisiana and had always wanted to live in New York City my whole life. I really can't even explain to you. I went there when I was, I think maybe 10 years old and my mother still remembers me turning to her and saying, I'm going to live here one day. (laughs) And so I feel like I was singularly focused on living in New York City and whatever that took from a very early age. And when I was in college, I read an article in a magazine that used to be sort of something that everyone kind of had called Vanity Fair, which is still around, but I don't think it has the same reach that it used to. And there was an article about the auction world. And I didn't know anything about the auction world. You know, my parents were not art collectors. We used to go to museums with my parents, but I didn't really care that much about art. And I didn't really know that much about art. So I read this article about the auction world, which is basically a place where people go to buy and sell art. So it doesn't just sit on the wall of a museum, but in fact, you can purchase it and have it in your home. And this is everything from you know a small painting by a relatively unknown artist to a piece of jewelry to a Picasso. So it really runs the gamut. But the article was about the sale of Princess Diana's dresses. She had decided at the time when she was alive that she was going to auction off dresses throughout from th- that she'd worn throughout her life to benefit charity. And this was going to be done in New York city on, on a a park Avenue at a place called Christie's. And I read the article and it talked all about the women who worked in the auction world and how glamorous they were and how they traveled. And it just stuck in my mind. And I could not shake the feeling that this was where I was supposed to work, which was hilarious because I told everyone, I knew that I wanted to work for Christie's and everyone was sort of like, what is that? I was like, And then the next question was, "What is that?" And um, and so you know, it was one of those things. And I feel like there's a word that I hear all the time now amongst my friends about manifesting. You know, you say it out loud, you tell everyone you know, you you do everything you think you can, and you put your mental energy towards the manifestation of something. And I guess I at that age, without knowing it, I was manifesting, um, so that I you know could be relevant with today's term. Yeah. Um, I was busy manifesting before I knew what I was doing, and. My parents in, a, I grew up in Baton Rouge for sort of after, after high school, my parents moved and I was at a Christmas party and my dad pulled a woman over who was so chic and so cool. And in her early twenties and said, Lydia, you won't believe it, but this girl works at Christie's. And I was so floored. And I remember talking to her about her job and she said, well, if you're going to work at Christie's, you have to get an internship. That's kind of the way it works. Like it's sort of a feeder program because you kind of have to learn the auction lingo. And I, you know, I didn't live in New York City, so I didn't realize that internships were things that got months in advance. And, you know, there was sort of a pecking order for how it worked. And so I just called up the woman's number that she gave me and asked her if I could join the internship program, which was, as you can imagine, a hard pass because the internship program (laughs) closed for months at that point, because this was, I think, April and, you know, the internship program applications, I think, closed in January of that year. Wow. I just wasn't willing to take no for an answer. And at that time, we didn't have iPhones. I know this is going to be hard for (laughs) we actually didn't even have cell phones we had landlines and I called her every day and because she didn't know who was calling she just kept picking up the phone the poor woman and her name was Mary Libby and I would say hi Miss Libby this is Lydia Finette from Louisiana again I was just calling to see if perhaps there was a chance that I could come as an intern I know it's full but maybe there's a wait list or you know and finally one day she said to me Okay, um, you know, I, I really just this this is not going to work out. There's there's no room, and I just kind of took the opportunity after writing out about 15 different ways that this could work to ask her the question that really led to the answer I wanted, which was why is the internship program capped? And she said, well, we ha- we can only have 30 because 15 can go in museum groups, so only 15 people can go at a time. So we split every internship Tuesdays and Thursdays to go to see museums, and we can only have 30 people. And I immediately had an answer for that. I've said, I don't need to go to the museums. I'm sure that there's somebody who's gonna need an extra intern. So I could just come and stay in the afternoons when everybody else does it. And I don't have to go to the programs. I can just work the whole time, which you know, I don't know if your parents are like this, but my parents are like, listen, you do every job. You empty the trash, you wipe the table, you do whatever it takes. You were the first one in the last one out and you were there with a smile on your face. And that was really the best advice I ever received because, you know, there were so many other people over the course of that summer, after she finally said, look, you can come and do a modified internship. And if someone doesn't go to the museum, you can go. And of course I ended up going to the museum every time because people don't show up for their internships a lot of time because they're in college and they're not responsible. And so that was such a great lesson for me in showing up being what it takes to succeed because I did show up every single day and I was working hard. And at the end of the summer, they offered me a job.
0: Wow.
1: And I was a junior in college, so I couldn't even take it. (laughs) So I went back the next year and did a, a quick internship into a job as well. So that's how it all started. And that was not a short story, but I hope it sort of tells you a little bit about who I am and, and how it all got started.
0: Definitely. And it gives a lot of insight into how, you know, it works and how you're able to, or how you were able to get to where you are. So thank you. But how do you think that drive and that persistence and what some may say is tenacity, how do you think that that impacted their view on you? And do you think that that led to a job? Yes,
1: absolutely. Because I've been, I probably had 30 interns over the course of my career and I can count on one hand, the ones that I remember. And they are the ones who showed up. I mean, there's one woman who to this day, she runs a team at Goldman Sachs and I still refer to her as the intern. She interned for me, I think maybe 16 or 17. <laughs> she's always sort of like, well, I do run a team. You know, she sits on the board at Barnard. I mean, she's an incredibly impressive wow. person. But I could have told you that that would have been her career trajectory because there's one, there's one story that will always stick out in my mind. I was running events for Christie's at the time And it was a crazy day and I was running around. And at that time we had Blackberries. I don't even know if you know what that is, but it's basically the the first iteration of an iPhone. And, you know, we're all sort of typing frantically on our Blackberries, and they lost charge very quickly. And in events, it's tough because you're all over the building and everyone has different things going on. So you needed to be able to communicate. And I went running into my office, where is my Black, does anyone know where my BlackBerry is? And Carolyn was standing outside of my door and she said, oh, you know, honestly, I noticed that your BlackBerry was losing charge. So I plugged it in for you. And I remember thinking to myself, like I had critical moments with the five interns that I could list these days of moments like that, where I thought she is going to crush a career one day because she's willing to go above and beyond. And as a boss, that's what you look for in someone. It's they show up with an attitude where they're willing to do things. They're not above things. They dig in, they want to learn. And they understand that every moment in some ways, either a learning experience to work or a learning experience for a personality in an office, which is just as important as being good at your job.
0: Right. When you're hiring interns, what do you look for in that interviewing process? Cause I feel like there's just so many things that you can find. Absolutely.
1: So I look at, you know, I've stepped out of my full-time role at Christie's, which was strategic partnerships. But when I was looking for people to intern in partnerships, so much about what I was looking for had to do with the way that they thought you know, I didn't need a linear thinker. I needed someone whose mind almost played 3D chess because a partnership is really about fitting people in with different needs. So, you know, if I wanted to do something and we had a particular sale coming up around, you know, contemporary art, which is very avant-garde and it's always the brands that want to be in the forefront. They're not looking for, you know, a heritage piece of Chrissy's. They're looking for the best thing, the NFT, the exciting thing that they can right. hook into. So it, it was sort of like, if I were to tell you I was looking for that, what would be some potential partners? And it was interesting to see the way that people's minds worked, you know, because some people would come up with the, the very, the ones that we'd done year over year, like, oh, we could do something with fashion, or we could do something with a car brand. And then there would be someone who'd say, we could do something with a tech brand, we could do something with this app or this, you know, it was just the way that people thought about things, for me was always, really the reason that I wanted them in the department. I wanted someone who thought differently than I thought who could bring something different to the table because, you know, I'd been at the company at that point for two decades. I'm like, you don't need to tell me anything about auction. I know how to talk about auction, but talk to me about what you know about the metaverse because that's something I'm learning about right now.
0: Right. And I think that's what we're all, we all want to learn more. Right. And there's some, I feel like people stray away from their creativity because they think it's not going to get them somewhere, Mm -hmm. especially for Gen Z that's our power in a weird sense right because that's our entire lives you know we were born with computers in our hand all of our college applications are online you know we i we saw a nokia once you know i saw a blackberry a couple times but like that's (laughs) it you know and this is like the top of gen z there's the other bottom of gen z (laughs) right so we also forget that that's a superpower
1: Yes, absolutely. And I say that to people too, you know, a lot of people talk to me about mentoring and, and how do you mentor, how do you structure mentoring? And I always say, when you're asking a mentor for something, you know, you should also be thinking like what you can give back. And so what I say to people is, listen, if you were mentoring someone, this is taking a lot of your time. They're also probably younger than you are. And there's probably a lot you can learn from them that you would never even think to ask. So, mm-hmm. you know, it can be, I remember one of my friends was mentoring someone and she said, I taught them. I asked them to teach me how to do an Instagram story today. (laughs) So funny. And um, she said, but it's something I'd always wanted to learn. And at the end, she said her mentee had asked her, is there anything I can help you with? And she said, you know, I've always wanted to know how to do an Instagram story. And she's like, I know it sounds ridiculous. And the girl was like, I taught her in less than 10 seconds how to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that there's always mutual and beneficial ways for people to learn from one another. And Mm -hmm. if you're open to it, it becomes a much better and much more interesting life, as opposed to just being like, you don't know what you're talking about, or you don't know anything. But I think that also goes back to what I said about, you know, the importance of when you're, when you're working somewhere, it's like, you have to also understand that there are things that you're learning, even if you don't know that you're learning them. And someone who's been through it can also understand that because they've been through it. Yeah,
0: definitely. Definitely. What are some things that you've learned from this younger generation? What are some things that you've wanted to learn? Because obviously there's the Instagram level, but then there's the thought level too.
1: Yeah. In terms of the thought level, I'll say that I think I have always had an incredibly entrepreneurial mindset, which to me really is Gen Z's star power and superpower. You know, the ability to not feel so stuck in one thing, but rather to think holistically about a million different things that you could do and go in all of those directions and kind of follow your passion. And so that's something that, I loved, I'd always done that. I've always had side hustles. It's just kind of who I am. I write books on the side. I do auctions on the side and all of these things. But there was something about the Gen Z embracing of that, of that, that thought and that mindset that gave me a freedom to be like, actually i'm just supposed to be younger <laughs> that's that's really what it is i actually was just a little bit i was born too soon if i'd been born 20 years younger this would have worked really really well so i love that about the gen z generation and i also i we were talking about this before the podcast i love travel so much and so that's something that i love to see about the gen z generation that they're not afraid to get on a plane and go anywhere and see and view and feel and experience I don't know if you felt like this, but during COVID, I've said to many people, you know, on those long days, those like dark days where there was kind of nothing going on. The only thing I really thought about was the experiences that I've had in my life because I have traveled a lot and I love to travel and, and thinking through like what it was like to go to those places. I would go there in my mind just to get out of the four walls of the house. And so I do think that that's, Uh, the the most beautiful thing about the the Gen Z sort of mindset and and thought thought leadership in this in this way Mm
0: -hmm. definitely I think that was a lot of where that manifestation movement came from too was going to a certain place in your head without physically having to be there because for so long we couldn't right right Right. Uh, I mean since we're talking about it a little bit we can transition (laughs) towards like that side of your life too but in, in your young days when you were not, not that you're old at all. I mean, when you were uh, younger, right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, did you, were you ever aware of how you were going about the thing, the things that you were doing and did it ever click in you that you may be onto something?
1: I've always had an internal drive, you know, Hmm. I, I think even in college, you know, we had the option where I went to college, we had the option to get honors in, in our um, degree. degree. Basically. Oh, yeah. And not only did I double major, I did honors papers for both of them. you know, it was, it wasn't anything that anyone told me I had to do. I just kind of wanted to see if I could do it. So I told people I was going to do it, which is often the way that I end up getting myself into situations where I'm like, why did I do that? Um, that's even frankly how my book came about. You know, I wrote a book with a full-time job, three children and a second job at night. Like it was It was insane. But I think that that started at a very early age. And whether or not I knew that ultimately this was going to be something that I could embrace and and hold on to my whole life, I don't know that I was that aware, but I did understand that even at that age to be successful and to stand out in a crowd, you have to put in the work. You You can't, you can't shortcut it, you know, and I'm a charity auctioneer. I've run all the charity auctions for Christie's for almost a decade, trained all of the auctioneers that have come through that program for almost a decade. And the one thing I say to each and every one of them is what will make you good at this job is getting on stage as much as you possibly can and, getting, and having the good nights and the bad nights and the nights that make you wanna cry when you crawl off stage because no one's paying attention and getting through that and getting over it and going back out there and doing it again. And that was how I learned, you know, I've taken thousands of auctions now. And it was because in my twenties when nobody else wanted to go, I would go out night after night and take two, sometimes three in the same night, just to get the practice, like just to get on stage. And I don't think you can shortcut that because if you do, then you don't know what to happen. You don't know what to do when something happens that you haven't seen before. And if you frankly seen it all, then nothing scares you anymore.
0: Yeah. The experience, because that's exactly what my mom says to me too. I'm a dancer. So it's like, just go and just do it as much as you can. And one day you'll be fine, you know, and that that's what ends up happening, but it's plunging yourself into those. Okay. I just got to do it because it applies to, you know, getting on stage, but it applies to so many other things in your life too, where you just kind of have to plunge. Right. Yes, absolutely. And I think you really have
1: to get uncomfortable. You have to be okay being uncomfortable. You know, you have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable and you have to put yourself out of your comfort zone a lot. I'm taking an auction, a car auction in Pebble Beach. I've never taken a car auction in my life. Um, I'll be the first female auctioneer to take an auction in this massive car auction. Congrats! And It's funny because I feel nervous about it, which I don't feel nervous about charity auctions anymore. I mean, you really can put me on any stage in the world and just hand me a piece of paper and I'll just sell whatever you have, but it's a different kind of sale. It's a different crowd. It's a different expectation. And I feel nervous, which means that I'm doing the right thing because- you should feel nervous in life. You can't just coast on complacency always. Right. You have right. to get yourself out there. Otherwise you're just kind of
0: coasting in life. Right. Right. And I find I, I, I feel more excited about life when I get nervous and when I'm uncomfortable about the things I'm doing rather than just sitting here and be like, okay, well, what did I do today? Nothing. I did yes. nothing because I find that the days that I feel like I did nothing, I didn't feel any sort of excitement, you know, like, I, I read somewhere that your body can't tell the difference between nervousness and excitement. So that feeling is the same, right? And when, you know, you may be nervous, you may be uncomfortable, but nervous and uncomfortable and, you know, excited, but feeling something that's out of the ordinary is what will keep you up and up or keep you moving.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's this great story about, um, there was a study done about two musicians and also two public speakers and the two public speakers hated being on stage. And so when they were asked what they hated about being on stage, they said, Oh, I just hate like the moments before I go on stage, you know, I'm standing back there and I'm sweating and my palms are sweating and I feel sick. And my stomach feels like it's twisting. And I'm just so nervous. And they asked the two rock stars, like, what do you like about performing? They're like, Oh, I love that rush before I go on stage. I'm standing backstage, my fingers are tingling and I feel like a crazy stomach. And it's like they're describing the exact same feelings. But mentally, one of them sees it as nerves, or two of them saw that as nerves, and two of them see it as excitement. And I always say to people, you know, when it comes to public speaking, you bring the energy you want from the room. So if you walk out onto a stage and you are dull and tired, that's what the room is going to give you. And so even if I am exhausted. And I, you know, it's 11 o'clock at night and I've been running around for my kids all day and I'm on stage and all I want to do is go home. I'll chug a diet Coke before I go out there just to get that energy up. And I mean, I walk out there, I slam my gavel down and there is no one with more energy than me. And I keep it going the whole time I'm on stage because I need the, I need that from the audience. Like I need them to, to click in there and meet me there. And that's the way to do it.
0: How... I feel like that is such a skill in in, and of itself because we like everyone just has such crazy lives and coming on stage at, you know, 11 PM and having that energy and coming and showing with your full self can be really difficult at times. So what are other ways, how do you kind of balance your energy and maintain, conserve it rather for that side of things? Oh, uh,
1: do I conserve energy? I don't know. I, I think we're all made up differently.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm
1: an extrovert. I like to say I'm an extrovert, extrovert. I get my energy from being around people. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> you're nodding. So I, I feel like you feel the same way. And I do believe that some people just recharge differently. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's being in crowds of people. And if I am with 500 people right before I go on stage and I'm talking to a bunch of people, then I'm going to have a great time because I already have my energy up. People often say to me, you know, do you need a green room before the auction? Do you want to go sit by yourself? I'm like, no, I want to sit at a table with people right before I go on stage so that I'm already talking and I'm already in it. And then when I get on stage, it's just an extension of that energy.
0: Right. Just getting in the flow of things. And then the flow continues.
1: Exactly. So I think just to recharge for me, and it's really about, you know, keeping my body in in a good place. So making sure that I'm taking my runs or, you know, doing some kind of exercise to just keep moving. It's a very important other way to not only think, but also just make sure that your body physically is ready for that kind of, you know, presence on stage, because it does take a lot out of you, especially in heels at 11 o'clock at night to be on stage and the only person talking for half an hour, uh, with high energy. So, you know, it's being in shape physically and mentally.
0: I love, I love that because we, I guess you're, yeah, we all recharge differently. So for somebody who is an introvert, it may be, yeah, you need to sit in the green room and get your thoughts together, but understanding yourself and how you can function and not, I think a lot of people just get cluttered with what everyone else does and how everyone else works that it begins to, oh, that's how I work. That's how I must work.
1: Yeah. It's funny because my husband is an introvert and he has moments of being, he can be an extrovert. You know, he likes to go out for dinner with our friends, but then he needs time by himself. And I have three children and my daughters are both extroverts and my son is an introvert. And it's funny, well, he comes home from school. I'm like, do you just need to go in your room and play with your toys? He's like, "Mm mm-hmm. And he'll go in there for an hour, hour and a half, and just play by himself on the floor. He'll just like lay on the floor next to his Legos and play with his Legos. I mean, you could never, in a million years, I would never sit in a room with Legos for an hour and a half and just play. I might read a book for th- for that amount of time, but even then, I would be speed reading it. So it's not <laughs> even gonna be whipping through it. So yep. I just life on fast forward. It's who I am.
0: On to the next. Let's go. <laughs>
1: exactly. Okay, what are we doing next, everyone? The kids. Are yeah. Sort of-
0: I want to dive into your book a little bit because we're talking about, you know, we're talking about powerful women. We're talking about being on stage for the first time. Congratulations. That is so awesome. But take us through the premise. I know it's a big question. I love, I, oh my gosh, I was reading. I was like, oh my God. But <laughs> the, for people who don't know the premise, a little bit of your book and what it teaches and all that jazz.
1: Yeah. So when I was talking about being a charity auctioneer before I noticed something really interesting about almost 15 years into my auctioneering career where women would come up to me either before I went on stage or after I got off stage and they would say some combination of, you know, I could never do what you do. I could never stand on stage. I hate asking for things. You know, I have a business, but I'm terrible at selling. And it was just this litany of all the things they were bad at doing and I grew up in a small town in Louisiana. My mom is British. So neither of those cultures are very pro women going after things. You know, it was more about, you know, just being a little bit more demure in your ask. And if you're going to ask at all, frankly. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, I didn't grow up getting on stage in front of thousands of people banging down a gavel and just telling people that they're going to give me money, which is what I do, honestly, on stage. There is no question when I get on stage, who is the most powerful woman in the room? Because everyone is staring at me as I sell these things and I have no compunction about asking them for anything. And it was really interesting because I realized that there was a market and a question that I could address in the form of storytelling. And so The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You is really a story, a story about personal growth, how I learned how to embrace power and to get power through things that happened over the course of my career. And I wrote that book. It was about 15 years into my career. So I'd gone through the first time when I realized that I was making a third of what everyone else was making, even though I was doing not only my job, but a night job as well. That is a volunteer job for the company. You know, there were all these huge things that had happened to me, and I realized that This could be the book that I didn't have when I was 21, graduating from college, when I was just going out to get a job just because it was fun and I needed money to live in New York City, which is where I wanted to live, but not really thinking about a career, thinking about the fact that I should be asking for raises every year. I just, there wasn't what there is now on social media. You weren't exposed to that kind of thinking. And so it felt very important for me as I moved into this sort of next chapter of my life to pass that information back. And so that's the most powerful woman in the room is it really starts in my early 20s when I started at Christie's and takes you basically through the, moment where I'm like about to start my book tour, which is where my second book picks up. (laughs) So I have, I feel like I'm now writing memoirs, Um, but there are just so many lessons that I'm learning. And at my age, I'm in my early forties, which, you know, when I was your age sounded like I was close to death, but I promise that life goes on after your (laughs) forties. But it was really interesting because I do remember so vividly thinking after college, God, no one prepared me for this. No one told me what it was like to leave all my friends and my family and, and have to make these decisions on my own and, and to be okay selling myself and to be okay with my own voice and feel like it was valid and I should be out there saying these things. So I hope it just gives people a boost. I hope it makes them want to think about these things and, and hopefully employ some of the lessons that I teach over the course of their life.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've read up on your book. I've, I have the ebook. I don't have the physical copy. (laughs) Um, but my mom, even she was, she, the, the, the number one thing she tells me is, okay, you can sell, but learn how to sell yourself yes. because that is the most important skill to have. And it doesn't mean needing to be rude about it because yeah. I also, we also come from this culture where it's like, you need to make your ask small and yeah. you can't ask for too much. At least I feel like that all the time because it's also like, you gotta, you gotta be nice. You gotta be respectful, but there is a fine balance too because you need to move somewhere and yeah. you won't move unless you ask.
1: Right, exactly, and I think that the other part about the book—I mean, the, the book is hot pink. If you if you buy the hardcover, you'll say it is a hot pink and red book.
0: Yes, and
1: I really equate that with something that I learned from being on stage because when I trained to be an auctioneer, I trained with guys, and you know, the lead auctioneers at Christie's—the guys who were taking all the big sales—and and really only until the past five years, this has always kind of been the case in the art world—were men, and they were wow. usually British. they were always in black tie. It was very elegant. It was very Beautifully presented. Charity auctioneering is not the same thing. I'm not selling Picasso's. I'm selling things at 11 o'clock at night on stage that they don't really even want, but they're there to support the charity. So we might as well make it fun. And when I trained, I did exactly what I'd been taught. I took charity auctions just the way that people sold Picasso's. And again, not the same thing. And I felt like because I was getting on stage as a young woman, I always had to dress like a man. Like I always dressed in black suits, you know, black this, black pantsuit, black suits. And over the course of the past real two decades as an auctioneer, you've, you will have seen if you looked in pictures where I started as to where I am now, I am on stage in bright red dresses and bright yellow dresses and huge earrings and heels. And my point in the book is there is power in femininity Just as there is power and masculinity, it can look different. It doesn't have to be the same. It doesn't have to be bad or good. It's just different. And, you know, I'm going to take this big car auction and everyone keeps saying, oh, she's the first female auctioneer. And I said to, I said to someone recently, isn't it going to be amazing when someone just says, wow, Lydia is a fantastic auctioneer. It doesn't say the fact that I'm female, because the bottom line is I am the best charity auctioneer that is out there right now, female or not. And yet female is still in there. Always. Well, she's a female auctioneer. Like, no, just an auctioneer guys, just like you <laughs> doing the same job up there. I just happen to be a woman. And so that was really my point in the book. And that's why I made it hot pink. And that's why I toured in hot pink and, and read the whole time to show people that like see, to be taken seriously does not mean that you have to to fit the norm or to be what you think you have to be. You can be whoever you want, but it can be as powerful even you, even if you are as a woman.
0: And thank you for doing that work because I feel like it's you or people like you who it gives us the confidence because, you know, if I wanted to wear a suit, I would wear a suit. But if I was in the mood to wear a bright red dress and big earrings, then that's what I would wear. But I wouldn't think that way if it weren't for you, you know, and if it weren't for the work that you had to do to get there.
1: Yeah, yeah. It is funny, even to this day, and I spoke at a financial institution at their conference, and I said to one of the senior women who was wearing this beautiful red pantsuit, and I said to her, you know, it's funny, I can tell who all the junior women are because they're all wearing black. And she said, yeah, now I know. It's so true. It's like, you feel like it's a, it's almost like armor. You know, you fit in because you're wearing black and no one will notice you. And then at some point you cross over and you find your confidence and you find your power. And then all of a sudden you find the color too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is so, It. I didn't, I didn't even equate it to that. Like the confidence in your ability to say, no, this is my choice and this is what I want to wear. And this is what I want. So I'm going to do it mm-hmm. and I don't want to just fit in. It yes. can be equated to where you are in, you know, life, a company, whatever it may be.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. So going back a little bit to asking and asking for things I think especially women have a lot of difficulty with doing that whether it's a little time for themselves whether it's a raise what whatever it may be right so what this is going to give a big glimpse I think into your book but asking for things how did you kind of learn how to do that and what did it teach you what did you learn throughout the steps of learning how to do it
1: well I think the, the reason that I know how to ask for things and I'm not afraid to ask for things is because I get rejected every time I'm on stage. There's always an underbidder to the winner, right? Someone always backs out before someone wins. And so my whole my whole role in being an auctioneer is to convince the underbidder to keep going. So I'm, I'm pushing against that no constantly. And so I think in a way it's almost given me Teflon as a, a shield in front of me, because I don't really care if you say no, I've heard no six billion times because every time I sell something, somebody tells me no. And then I try to convince them that that's not the case. And it it bled over into my life. And even as recently, I was on a trip with a friend and my bag was ridiculously overweight because I just cannot pack a suitcase that is not so full that unless there are four people sitting on it, it doesn't close. And I'm scared of breaking my finger. It just doesn't happen. And we got up to the gate and I put it on and the man said, um, your bag is 65 pounds. And I said, Right, and he said, and it's supposed to be fifty. And I said, right. And he said, so I'm going to need to charge you. And I said, you know, I think you should just press the button, like just get it. Why don't you just? Then I said, you're like making this signal as if to say, like move. And he's like, what? And I said, just, just. Push, push that, push that back. And he's like, what? I was like, I am a great flyer of this airline and I have great clothes. I have purchased a lot in this country. I feel like this bag should just get on the plane. And I was laughing the whole time. And my friend afterwards, cause he did it. He eventually just pushed the backpack. And she said to me, she said, I can't believe that works. And I said, you know, if you approach things with a smile and a sense of humor and you don't care if the answer is no, cause I figured he was going to say no, cause he was egregiously overweight. But but I was laughing so hard and he started laughing so hard. He was finally like, okay, you know, whatever. Just like, yeah, what does it, what does it mean? He's just going to take it back. He put a heavy, heavy thing on it. And he went back. I'm sure I'm not the first person that he's done that for, but it is so funny. And that's how I often see things from stage. And that's what I always say about asking for things. I think a lot of times we feel like we have to go in guns a blazing to ask for things. When in fact, as my grandmother always said, you catch more bees with honey, you know, you make it a little bit sweet, a little bit funny, Like make the ask not as serious and let people know that you're going to be coming back for it every time. And, and then there's nothing about it. That's scary. You know, if you walk in there and all of a sudden you're affecting a voice that isn't yours, like, this is what I want. And I want this that might not feel good to you. Right. So find your own voice and don't be afraid to ask. And more importantly, don't be afraid if the answer is no,
0: Mm. you know, in
1: my book, I had 33 case studies that, you know, in the, in the most powerful woman in the room is you after each chapter, I had women write something about the chapter. So I would send them the chapter title and just say like, write 150 words. And they would. And I asked, I mean, I probably asked 60 people and half of them said, no, Oh, I don't have time. Oh, this really isn't my thing. Am I really a powerful woman? I heard that a lot from women who were very powerful. I don't know. Like that feels like a lot to say that I'm a powerful woman. I mean, really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. And what I learned from that was that the first no felt like a punch in the stomach. Cause it came from a very well-known news anchor who I was really hoping was going to do it. And she's like, I'm sorry, I can't. And that felt like a punch in the stomach. And then the other 20 that said, no, I was like, whatever, <laughs> it's just an email, right. I'm not yeah. going to die. Um, it doesn't feel great to hear no, but it doesn't matter At the end of the day, it's not going to kill you.
0: Right. And the, you know, that attitude, I think too, is so important because coming into it, like we were talking about, you know, manifesting in that you know, the attitude you come into things with, right? The people who come in and are just like, rrr, rrr, right? It there won't get this, it won't get the same result as somebody yeah. who comes in happily and is just trying to have fun because that yeah. it it, it it's contagious.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I was so excited about my bag. That was that's a story I've told many people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's such a cool story. It's like sales in its purest form. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's funny
1: how you know. In in jobs, in many cases, people have jobs where they're just constantly attacked by people. You know, yeah. if I'd gone in there and my bag had been overweight and I was like, oh, I don't want to pack my bag, you know, and just like gone the, in the opposite direction, you better believe I would have paid for that bag. But just getting up there and just like laughing and being like, you know, I just had to buy so much and I supported the local economy to such a degree that I can't even get my suitcase on the plane. The guy was just laughing so hard and I was <laughs> laughing so hard. So. It all worked
0: out. (laughs) How are you able to take that attitude on stage? Because they're obviously two different environments and two very different scenarios, right? So how how are you able to translate it?
1: I mean, that's what I do on stage. I I lost the formality, and I think that's really why it works. Because again, as I say, I'm at a charity auction. In many cases, I'm getting on stage to sell a vacation home, you know. And I, I remember getting on stage to say ladies and gentlemen, I'm selling this amazing ski house in Vail. It's actually available all year round, but it's most importantly is available this time during the year. And there, there was a guy who was bidding. And finally at his last bid, he said something like, I said, you know, sir, would you like another bed? No. And I said, you don't want to ski. He's like, Oh, I'm not a skier. I don't even like skiing. I was like, well, you have to like fall spring or summer because those are the other seasons of the house is available year round. We were just saying skiing and he started laughing. He's like, yeah, actually I do like fall. And he kept bidding. Um, so sometimes it's just, again, it's that sort of sense of humor and then just pushing back a little bit. It never has to be harsh. And I never try to do that on stage. I don't try to make it about people not bidding. I just try to make it about maybe just bidding one more. Yeah. you know, Um, and having fun with people because people like to be called out. They like to have fun. And a lot of times I'll, use a celebrity doppelganger. You know, I'll say something like, look, it's a gentleman over there who looks like George Clooney, but George Clooney before the twins, you know, he's looking a little tired because we all know having children is tiring. So let's pretend like George Clooney from Ocean's Eleven. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's just, it's, it's fun. And I think because I'm having fun and people often say that to me, you look like you're having so much fun up there. And I say, I am having so much fun up there (laughs) and then they have fun.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's because in, when you dance too, people have fun when you have fun. So people yes. look at me and go, you look like you're having so much fun. I'm like, because I am. Because but seeing fun. how that can translate into other aspects of business and selling is so powerful because it's that same attitude that you have to go about it and how you have a normal interaction is just with more people right? Yes, exactly. And,
1: you know, most importantly for people who are selling things that they've created, you know, I, there's mm-hmm. so many entrepreneurs out there and, you know, even in my own age group, there's so many women who had children and then went back to work or trying to start businesses, you know, D C businesses on yeah. um, Instagram or Facebook or whatever it might be. And it's interesting because they always say, I hate selling my product. I'm like, but who can sell it better? You made it right. Like yeah. you're the person who created this. So who can tell that story better than you? And that goes to selling yourself as well. You know, people people will say, well, what do you what do you think about this?" or do you want to do this?" And a lot of times I'll be like, "Listen, I'm not going to do that. i am I have no interest in doing this particular thing. It is not in my skill set. I do not enjoy it. It is not what I am passionate about. Like that is not something I will do. These are the 10 things I will do, but I didn't have enough confidence to say that until probably 10 years ago. Cause I used to just always think that saying yes was what made me likable. And if I was likable, then I would get ahead, but that strategy doesn't work. You Mm. have to know yourself and be able to stand up for yourself because then you'll be, end up doing the things that you're good at doing. And you can continue on that path instead of doing things that other people think you should be doing. And you can do sort of a mediocre job doing.
0: I love that. Because we all we all like we all we all say yes all the time. I'm yeah. so guilty of it. I'm just like yeah yeah yeah. hmm hmm mm-hmm. But do saying that is one thing. Sticking to it is another. Being able to execute properly is another. Yeah. So you know, knowing your limits too is obviously yeah. super important.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> um. First question: What do you do during the day to kind of keep balance and keep you know normal ish, same?
1: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. To to keep normal. I wish that I could say that I thought that that was the case, but I exercise, I try to exercise. That's really my balance. And as long as I'm doing that to some degree or moving my body, which luckily in New York is, is quite easy because you can walk a lot of places. um, I typically, that keeps me pretty balanced.
0: (laughs) Um, What's your mantra or mantra, something that you live by?
1: I live by the feeling that you should always say yes to opportunities and I really, if you knew me well, you would know that that is who I am. You know, someone's like, yeah. do you want to do this for three days in the middle of a country that's, you know, 15 hours away? Yes, I will do anything, go anywhere, try anything, because I think that's the way that life is explored. And it's a richer life when you have the opportunity to say yes and not be scared to try things that are outside of your comfort zone.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, traveling experiences. There is actually an Expedia ad, and it's such a great ad. But they're like, at the end of the day, when we're sitting on our be- deathbed, we're not going to remember the things that we wanted to buy. Or, sorry, we're not going to regret the things we wanted to bu- buy. We're going to regret the things that we didn't experience. Mm-hmm. I was like, you got me there.
1: Like- I know. I know. Well, I mean, I told you that I was in a, a really bad car accident last year. And, you know, I, my whole family came very close to not living, uh, to be honest, it was a horrific accident. And so I can tell you from that experience, not only did I already live like that, but now I live like that to the 10th degree because it's unbelievable how quickly life can disappear. And I, I can't even explain to you how quickly our accident happened. It happened out of nowhere. And it has been such a life altering Mm. thing for me to realize that, all of a sudden life could disappear tomorrow. So you should live the life you want to live and not be scared of going after the things you want or doing the things you want to do. And you shouldn't be scared of life because it's there to be lived and to be experienced in the highs and the lows and the happy and the sad, um, in each and every one of those emotions.
0: I don't know if you've heard of stoicism. I'm sure you have stoicism. There's a saying memento mori, which just means like live every day to the fullest. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But there's a coin. It's like, it could be your last moment. Yeah, yeah. it could. Yeah. I could. I'm so sorry about that, but I'm very glad that you all are here. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> I hope, have you, have you guys been able to recover?
1: Yes. Well? Yeah. We have. Yes. We, I mean, I, as, as the mom, I took a lot of the injuries, so that's what you would always want with your kids. So we were lucky, but we were all in the hospital for some time. And I had a couple of surgeries, but yes, we are doing well and the kids are good and healthy. And, you know, we've kind of had to work through the trauma of the accident with them, but they're in a good place. And, you know, I say to them all the time, this is a story that's part of the fabric of our family. And we, as a family recover and we talk about it all the time. And um, and so, you know, I think there, there are always going to be things that are a little scary for all of us, but you know, for the fact that it hasn't been a year and we are where we are, we're very, very blessed, very blessed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's, I feel like there's a little, there's a little snippet. There's a little bump in everyone's story. Yes. Traumas, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. One more question for you. One, what's the best thing you've done with your money and the worst money mistake you've ever made?
1: Oof. I can tell you that. Okay. Let me start with the first one. Um, the worst money mistake I've ever made. I didn't understand the way credit cards worked. So let me just make this clear for anyone who's listening right now. Um, If you use a credit card, which is fine, you want to build your credit, you should pay it off every month. However, if you do not pay it off every month, you still have to pay the minimum balance. So I did not realize this in my 20s. And I accrued a small credit card charge that was not outrageous, but I just didn't feel like paying off the minimum balance because I wasn't really making any money in my job. And so I just figured that at the end of the year, when we got a a seasonal bonus, which again, we're talking about very small amounts of money right now, um, I would just pay it off. And so I didn't pay the minimum balance for a year. And then when I got my very small seasonal bonus at the end of the year, I used that money to pay it off and had effectively ruined my credit. Because if you don't pay the minimum balance, even for one month, you start paying more interest, but eventually you just get into the place where your credit score is so bad that it takes years years to recover from and luckily this is when i was 21 so i didn't really need credit for much at that point but i that let me let me be the cautionary tale please spread the word amongst anyone if you are going to get a credit card do not use it as anything other than a pretend debit card where you already have the money and you're using it and then you're paying it off every month however if you do overspend one month try to pay it off as quickly as possible but in the meantime pay the minimum balance because if you do not it will ruin your credit score. So that would be my first financial mistake um and a glaring one at that. Um the best thing that I did with my money. So when I started working at Christie's I kept hearing this woman Susie Orman or Suze Orman I'm not sure um she's sort of a financial guru and she was on the Today show that my mom used to watch when I was little and So when I sort of was in my 20s and I moved to New York, I started watching the Today Show because my mom used to have it on. So it kind of reminded me of being at home with my parents. And she would say every single time, if you work for a company that matches your 401k and you are not, you're not maxing out your 401k, you are literally throwing money away. And I wasn't making a lot of money. So the thought of like putting things anywhere outside of my paycheck just seemed crazy to me. But I remember I invested, I would take out 1% of my paycheck and put it into 401k, which was then matched by the company. And about three or four years in, I heard her say it, it must've been the 50th time I heard her say it. And I was like, maybe I will just, you know, take the 6%, whatever, and get matched. And that money just has been sitting in an account ever since. I've never touched it. It just grows and grows and grows. And there's something called compound interest, which I don't know if you know what that is, but I'm sure that every single... Parent out there who's listening to this is thanking me for saying this. Yes, money just grows and grows and grows and grows. So leave it in a savings account, leave it in a place where it can continue to grow year over year. Don't touch it, just leave it there. And you won't believe if you if you look at that. I mean, for me, it's been 20 years now of something that was being matched by by my company, just growing on its own, never touching it, and just leaving it. And that has been the greatest financial investment I've made. The other thing I would say too, is, you know, a lot of people always say that they're going to make all of their money in salary. Like, oh, I'm going to work in this job and work hard. I'm going to make money. The other way to make money is to invest. So also think about investing. If you have friends who are entrepreneurs, like put a little money in their company, if you think that they're going to be successful, like diversify a little bit more over time. Mm -hmm. Um, I know these things seem scary. They're pretty simple concepts. So educate yourself, especially if you're a young woman listening to this Make money a priority in your life. Understand what it is. Don't think that somebody's going to take care of it for you. Don't put yourself in a position where you are not financially savvy. Because at the end of the day, you never know what's going to happen in your life. So just make sure that you understand finance and take the time to educate yourself, whatever that in whatever form that takes, whether a friend tells you, whether you're listening to podcasts, whatever it is, make sure that it's a priority.
0: Definitely. Definitely the pandemic for me was what really opened up that door because everything came crashing down and all my parents would talk about was, oh my gosh, this is crashing. My grandfather was like this, this, and this. And now somebody just talked about to me to producing. And I never thought about that as an investment, but, you know, investing in movies and investing in projects like that too there's angel investing there's investing in nfts there's whatever but there's also that side of things yes where you know you can invest in movies so it can go as far as that yeah
1: exactly exactly
0: um i i have one last question for you but oh yes okay best and worst advice you've ever received i know you kind of you stated your best in the beginning but Mm -hmm. your best and your worst
1: the worst advice i'd ever received was really not even advice. It was just something that I was told in my job for so long that I started to believe it and then told other people who worked for me, you know, people would say, oh, I want a salary bump. And this was in my twenties before I'd even figured out how little I was making. And I would say what I'd been told, which was, you're just lucky to have a job here. There's so many other people who would want your job. So that is a myth for sure. We are lucky to have jobs, obviously not every economy is a strong one. And it certainly doesn't mean that there are jobs, there are an abundance of jobs always. But the bottom line is if you're doing a job and you're doing it well, you deserve to be compensated for that. So don't be afraid to ask and don't ever listen to somebody who tells you that, you know, get around them, talk to HR, make sure that that is not something that you hear. Um, And the best advice that I've ever received is just, you know, ask for forgiveness, not for permission. Go after things in life that you want to do. And don't worry so much about what other people think, because frankly, you're not really asking anyone for permission to live the life you want to live. Um, And if you do something wrong, you can always say, I'm sorry, and ask for forgiveness. So fortune favors the bold.
0: I love it. I love it. Fortune favors the bold. Fortune <laughs> favors the bold. <laughs> All right, Lydia, I'm going to let you take the mic away. Why don't you go ahead and shout out everything that you'd like to?
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on thank this incredible podcast. This has been such a great conversation. So I would just like to shout out two things. First of all, the most powerful woman in the room is you. If you are in your 20s and you want a pick-me-up and you, even if you're before that and you're ready to get prepared for your adult life or you're somewhere in your career and you just need a boost, pick it up. It's hot pink. It looks good on a bookshelf. Um, Claim Your Confidence is my second book that comes out in March of 2023. And I'm very active on Instagram and I'm starting a podcast called Claim Your Confidence this fall. So stay tuned for all of that. I'll have to get your guidance on and your (laughs) on how to do a podcast. You can walk me through it. But otherwise, thanks for listening and I hope to meet you guys soon.
0: Yes. Ah, thank you so much for coming, Lydia. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Lydia and I had such a blast talking. We, I'm sure you could tell, instantly connected. Um definitely follow her instagram links will be in the show notes and you guys need to keep up to date with her podcasts and definitely go check out her new book that literally just released so this is actually perfect timing and one more thing keep an eye out for um the most powerful woman in the room is hold on wait the most powerful woman in the room is you on netflix I think. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but I said it anyway. Okay. (laughs) I hope you guys enjoyed this and I will talk to you next week for another episode. Bye.